Welcome to the Space Store Podcast. You're listening to our Space Roundup. Every fortnight on the Space Roundup, we are joined by space experts and astronomers Nick Howes and Terry Mosley to catch up on the latest and greatest space news from across the universe. The Space Roundup is also available to watch in wonderful Technicolor along with all of seasons 1, 2 and 3 on the Space Store YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Space Store Live. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Space Roundup. Please welcome our, our guests, Nick and Terry. How are you guys doing? We're good. We're good. What a, what a monumental day <laughs> to be doing this show. It is, whether we're talking about the government or sport, uh, there's been some great news for the British people. Yeah. Uh, well, um, thank you everyone for joining us on this lovely Tuesday evening. Once again, if this is the first time you're joining us, this is the show where we bring you the latest and greatest of space news from across the universe. And I'll let our hosts, Nick and Terry, take it away for another great show. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, uh, as I was <coughs> saying, um, wow, what a day. Um, if you're not following the news, um, stick with us for a little bit because we'll probably bring you up to, date, up to speed anyway. But basically, the UK government appears to be collapsing around our feet. Um, the impact of, of that on what's happening in space, who knows? I mean, we've had in the past probably the worst science minister in, in living memory anyway, so it can't get much worse than that. Um, but we've got a packed show tonight. We've got loads of stuff, um, some really big news from Inmarsat, which was really cool. Um, loads of things about what's happening with launch systems around the world. Um, some amazing stuff being done by amateurs. And Terry's going to kick off with a really good story about Mars. So over to you, Terry. Oh, you're on mute, Terry. Can't hear you. Oh, can't hear Terry at the moment. Anybody? Just looking in the chat. I'm gonna I'm gonna fill in while uh, we can't hear Terry at the moment. Um, I'm getting back messages here from the background team. No idea why there's no sound. So I'm just gonna say hello. So uh, some of the team. Um, Oh, just messaging, same thing. They're trying to sort out a few technical things with Terry. Um, just saying hello to Ground Base Space, to Rob Thomas. Um, uh, usual suspects here. And it's really, really nice to see you. Please don't forget to put questions in the chat um, as and when. Um, we're more than happy to answer any questions if you so wish um, at any point during the course of the next hour, uh, just while we're sorting out a few technical problems. As I said, we've we've had quite a monumental month, really. Um, there's been some interesting stuff that we're going to talk about a little bit later uh, when it comes to the lookup section with respect to not to loosen clouds um, as well, which uh, it looks like there's a a big thing in terms of the methane emissions. Now, NLCs, uh, we'll talk about this a lot more during lookup, but NLCs are really prevalent at the moment. If you've never seen Noctilucent clouds, absolutely fantastic, well worth seeing, well worth going out and you know possibly staying up all night. I know lots of my friends and fellow astronomers around the world uh, do tend to stay up all through the night to look at these. Um, but there's some interesting kind of research going on now that's linking them more and more to the increasing amounts of methane that we're seeing in our atmosphere. And that's not a good thing. Um, so that's something we're going to be talking about a little bit later. Hopefully we'll get Terry back um, just in a little while. 
uh hi again uh, to more and more people in the chat this is really nice we're getting so many people in the chat what we could do guys going to our backroom team while we're trying to sort out terry if you want we can jump on to uh the next story and then come back to terry's um and i can carry on with that on the chinese launch uh system so i don't know if the backroom team want to queue that one up we were going to start with the sanction streams on march but Miles, but we're going to go on with this story while we just set out terry china and launches right so liquid launches what is a liquid launch this is an interesting one so my company who are based in the defense sector we've had some involvement in this um, with some uk companies uk company called blackout <coughs> industries who are really good at what they do really interesting you know insights into um that's great you know, oh hi terry you're back right good, good. Terry, i'm just yes. i'm just gonna go on with this one and then we'll come back fine, to you on, on mars if that's right yep, yeah right so liquid launches so Black Arrow Industries, nothing to do with the Black Arrow rocket. It's just a, a name that Paul Williams at Black Arrow decided to use, and it's a cracking name. They've been looking at this for some time in terms of being able to launch rockets from ships. Now, this makes a lot of sense if you think about it, especially for an island nation like the UK, where at the moment, you know, with what's happening in politics, and we go back to politics, you know, it's a, it's a big story at the moment, going back to politics, what's happening with potentially with Scotland in particular, with the Indy Ref 2 and the potential that Scotland could devolve within the next few you know few years this would leave the uk with almost no launch capability outside of cornwall with virgin orbit um, because most of the launch sites at the moment are based up in scotland so this notion and with scotland obviously you've got quite a limited launch capability in that you can only really launch into polar and sun synchronous orbits now if you think about it cape canaveral and you know Karoo and the major launch sites around the world all launch into what's called equatorial orbits which is you know things like the international space station vast majority of satellites that are hovering above us of the four and a half thousand that are above us probably about 90 percent of them are in equatorial and kind of that are launched from an equatorial orbit polar and sun synchronous orbits are useful if you want to do earth observation and monitoring where basically the satellite goes over the poles sometimes staying permanently in sunlight sometimes not this is where sun synchronous versus polar orbits come in and effectively the earth's rotation underneath allows them to sweep over different parts of the ground now this is useful for defense for spy satellites for earth observation for agriculture all sorts of different reasons now with china china's a gigantic landmass but their launch capability you know typically they have got multiple launch sites obviously inside the desert regions in china and some of the other cnsa controlled launch sites but what they're thinking now with with like sea-based launches is that they could effectively produce more or give themselves more launch capability now if china are to be believed and they're looking at things like these large constellations and we're going to be talking a bit more about that with the mrsat report later um this will give them the capability and the scope to really develop multiple launch sites so they could be lifting off with a much higher cadence or frequency than they are doing right now the reason why it makes sense, over 70% of the Earth is covered in water anyway. And with ship stabilization, ship, ship stability, et cetera, right now, this is, is more and more viable. This technology is not new. I mean, since about 19, late 1990s, sea-based launch has been a thing typically with old decommissioned oil rigs, et cetera, and, and launch platforms of that ilk, but more recently with large barges. And in the past, China have used solid rocket boosters with the Long March. It was Long March 11 was an SRB-based launch, which took off from the sea, and they have been doing this for some time. Now, a company called Orion Space, and I hope I've pronounced that correctly, plus the um, Chinese kind of launch technologies group, uh, CALT, and Gravity Group, they've all kind of colluded to look at 
at the possibility for liquid fueled rocket launches. Now, some of the issues with this in terms of stability. If you imagine, you know, if you're launching a missile from a ship, and that's obviously quite common, that's been going on for, for decades and decades now, it's of a fixed and kind of nominal size, even up to things like Polaris, for example, and submarine-based launch. And you could easily, you know, potentially launch something into orbit from a submarine or from a ship up to a certain size. But what they're looking at now is much larger launch vehicles. So if you can imagine the amount of heat from the exhaust, the down thrust, et cetera, and the stabilization that you'd need, you need quite a large vessel. And we look to this with conversion of dry bulk carriers and potentially old aircraft carriers, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the work my company did on the Queen Elizabeth uh, class and the Prince of Wales class aircraft carriers with making the, the whole deck surface, you know, the, it was a it was a real challenge with the F-35s, the vertical takeoff and landing and the amount of heat from the exhaust on those. But this is an order of magnitude, you know, significantly greater than that. So what they're looking at is something potentially a vessel around about 160-ish metres long, but about 40 metres wide of these kind of launch barges, being able to launch liquid-fueled rockets into orbit. Now, as I said, what this gives China is a capability that really nobody else is actively pursuing around the world outside of, as I said, the UK with this company called Black Arrow. And I know Paul has talked to various organizations all over the world in terms of the benefits of this to them. From the UK's perspective, if this were to become a thing, then the ability to have a ship that could leave from, say, Irish waters, from, from Dublin, from Cardiff, from any of the major ports, for example, around the UK, and then either sail northwards and wait until you've got good sea state, good stability, and launch into a polar sun-synchronous orbit, or go southwards, like off the coast of Portugal, etc. Now, the advantage is that is that the range safety that which is your launch trajectory safety making sure that the area around where you're launching is clear even if something catastrophically goes wrong you know during your launch you know if something were to blow up and you were strewing debris down what you don't want with a, a launch anywhere and this is why cape canaveral is really good because it kind of launches directly over the atlantic and there isn't much in terms of air traffic or sea traffic in that area they tend to clear the area and make sure it's okay it's really really handy and this is why I think this is a very interesting and viable idea. And again, China, who are rumoured also to be looking at an 800 metre high launch vehicle. I don't know if you've heard about that one, Terry. It's it's quite disturbing what they're looking at. Um, you think Starship's big. This thing's just off the scale. Um, China, again, seemed to be almost leading the way when it comes to space-based technology and launch capability and launch cadence. I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Terry, but I think, you know, this is, uh, I mean, we've obviously been landing spacecraft. Mm -hmm. You know, ground-based space says, you know, you talk about the Dragon, for example. We've seen SpaceX landing on barges now for years and really, really successfully. I mean, the pinpoint precision now, even with the cameras working, because in the past, and they're using Starlink, ironically, for the cameras. But launching and landing i mean that would be the ultimate goal i would imagine to be able to launch off a, off a ship and then be able to land back in the sea so therefore you, you've got a much better range safety a much better safety protection kind of thing in terms of if you're bringing rockets back down to the ground if something were to blow up on a pad you take out the pad if you take out a barge it's not as big a deal thoughts terry i don't know what, what you're yeah 
<clears throat> the only thing is if things go wrong on the barge, you have nowhere to run to. Yeah, apologies, first of all, for dropping out there. I don't know what happened, but my unmute button wouldn't work, so I couldn't unmute myself, so I had to drop right out and come in again. Yeah, um, the interesting thing is that China already launches the Long March rocket from sea, has that capability, and some of the rockets that they're going to be using uh, will be modified Long March ones. But yeah, the point you're making about uh, launching uh, ab initio, you're talking about a different order of magnitude because it is so much more massive, all that uh, fuel on board. Whereas when a rocket's coming down to land on the barge, it's basically almost out of fuel. So first of all, there's a lot less weight coming down. And secondly, if anything does go wrong, the explosion won't be ne nearly as big. But yeah, it's the way forward. I'm also thinking this possibly ties in with China's um, activities in the South China Sea around the Spratly Islands, oh, yeah. where they want to take that over <laughs> yeah. and they're building new islands and mm -hmm. so on. Uh, not at the equator, but a lot closer than than where they are at the moment with their most southerly launch option. So yeah, I, either building a base somewhere there or using that uh, the ports that they're building there as uh, facilities, relatively nearby facilities for a seaborne launch vehicle, which would go uh, to the equator. As nearest makes no difference. You don't have to be actually at not degrees, anywhere plus or minus 10 degrees of uh, north and south is, is very nearly as good. Yeah, it seems to be the way forward. And as you say, while you might possibly have a, an accident involving uh, some crew, um, fatalities or injuries, you're not going to be injuring a large number of civilian population. We did a lot of research on this and, as I said, investigations, uh, specifically talking to companies like Black Arrow, um, because obviously we do a lot of work in, my company do a lot of work in terms of ship design. And one of the things was almost to use a fully autonomous launch vessel. So the crew effectively evacuate the vessel to a support vessel, which is, mm -hmm. you know, N miles away from the launch site, depending on yeah. obviously the size of the rocket. Because the, obviously the other thing that you've got is if you've got an explosion, you can create waves, you can create shock waves, you can create all yeah. sorts of things that would impact. So having a launch kind of LCC launch control center on a separate vessel way away from the main ship and, and literally just having a minimal crew with a kind of vertical assembly rig that almost in effect, if you imagine the rocket is is down inside the barge and then literally gets hoisted mm -hmm. up, hoisted up, um, that seems to be the most logical way to do this. And then to have a third support vessel, which you could also have like your you know, your investors or people who may be involved in the launch, like you do on normal crew, or even tourists what, who yep. want to see a launch. Because you think about, you know, the the downside of UK launch at the moment, especially with Virgin Orbit, is all you're going to be watching from UK airport is a 747 takeoff. You're not going to see any fantastic rocket launches. You're literally going to see a plane takeoff with a rocket strapped underneath it. So it's going to be as, as dull as dishwater in terms of watching the launch from the ground, as it were, as opposed to going to somewhere like Baikonur or the Cape or, you know, any of the major launch sites. So, um yeah, it's it's a really interesting one, and one I think we're gonna we're gonna follow in, with intent, I would say, yeah. uh, over the coming years and months, um, just to see where they go with it. Because as I said, China are doing some quite astonishing things. I mean, they're they're talking. We'll probably talk about this in a future show about potentially beating everybody to get into, you know, getting people to Mars as well. So, who knows? Yep, you know. that's who my money's on. Well, it has been for some. It's that. <laughs> yeah. It's that. It's, it's. We both have the same view, Terry. Where yeah. you watch what China are doing, and it's a Mercury, Gemini, Apollo trajectory. They're doing the small step. They're doing yeah, up and down. One person, right now, up and down with two people. Now we're going to orbit. Now we'll do docking. Now we'll build a space station. 
they're doing it really nice and steadily and progressively yeah. and with with great success it has to be and said, they haven't lost the, the momentum that the americans did in terms of uh, uh, going out of lower earth orbit no absolutely uh, i mean they're, they're they're progressing steadily along that path certainly america's done great things uh, yeah. with the iss and so on and interplanetary uh, robotic craft but in terms of manned spacecraft or human spaceflight i have to say now uh, they really lost the momentum after uh, apollo 17 nothing more to the moon for what 50 years roughly yeah, no, well, just yeah. don't, don't get me started on that. Yeah. <laughs> we know about. Um, interesting comment in the in the chat from Ground Base Space about NASA. Yeah, NASA could be leading the way. There was a really interesting podcast I was watching a few days ago about Boeing, and I mean, th they basically said, "Are Boeing expletive expletive?" Um, <laughs> this is the thing. There's such a reliance on the old guard and the existing contracts, and I think now with SpaceX. Again, they're putting a lot of their eggs into the same basket. And as we'll be talking about it later in the show, that basket it could get upset. We don't know. Anyway, so we're going to roll back um, right. to our, our <laughs> initial launch story. This is a great one on uh, new interesting findings on Mars. Right. Now you're seeing the photo. Yeah, that's what I was talking about. When I saw that first, I thought, that's not real. That That's not Mars. That's Earth. I've seen things like that many places on planet Earth. And anybody that ever looks down at their feet as well as looking up into the sky has probably seen features like that. If you're walking along a, you know, a, a riverbed or any exposed rock or and you've probably seen something very like that. And yet it's not, it's Mars. Now we've heard an awful lot recently about uh, the helicopter, Perseverance, all that. This actually goes back to the Curiosity, which has been in the Gale Crater uh, since 2012. And it has been trundling along uh, with a few hiccups along the way, sustaining a bit of uh, wear and tear. But uh, it has explored lots of areas in the crater and is now uh, exploring the, the lower slopes of Mount Sharp on the rim of the crater. And it's transitioning, therefore, from lower areas where there are lots of clay-based minerals. And clay basically implies, again, uh, the existence of water in the past. It's materials that are laid down by uh, the presence of water. Transitioning from that region up into higher regions where there's more uh, sulfate-based materials. So transition regions are always uh, very interesting. But this one in particular, when you look at it, you don't really have to be a geologist to look at that and say that was laid down by water, either flowing water or relatively shallow water. It's not the sort of uh, feature you, you get where there's big waves pounding on a rocky shoreline. So relatively shallow water, either a pond or a, a riverbed at some time in the past. Now, we know that, unfortunately, there's nothing like that on, the, on Mars at the present, but it shows that there has been something there in the past. We've seen all sorts of evidence of uh, ice below the surface of Mars and either sublimating or melting and causing various features, uh, particularly on the rims of craters and so on, and other activity in high polar latitudes, which I'm not going to go into. But here we are in Gale Crater, and that is definitely evidence of uh, significant amounts of water in the past. <clears throat> and we hardly need to repeat again that where there's water and the presence of various minerals, there is certainly the possibility of life. So it's good to see that even Curiosity still going strong uh, after uh, a decade, basically, is still producing these amazing results. Uh, and it's showing you 
we needed confirmation yet again that uh, it's witnessing the uh, evidence of a much different, much wetter uh, Mars in the distant past. We don't know just how far back this this but. Uh, material was laid down in, in terms of the liquid water in the area. But it's it's a different Mars that was there in the past, uh, a transition period, and it's going to be absolutely fascinating whenever we can study some of the rocks like that and the ones that we hope will be brought back uh, from the, uh, the ExoMars mission uh, in the future when we can study them on Earth. Distinct possibility of finding some fossil type material on that. I'm sure you're just as excited, Nick. I, th I am. The thing is, it's boots on the ground again. It's this argument, and going back to you know Professor Sir Martin Rees, for example, the Astronomer Royal, and his debate of you know where we talked about this in the past, where you know people are saying should we be just using robots? No, you know if we had a geologist there right now looking at that, could you imagine what we could get from that? So the the notion of putting people on Mars and SpaceX is saying that you know potentially within the next next one or two launch windows they're aiming to put people into at least Mars orbit. Now putting people on the ground there's still this huge argument of getting scientists on the ground before we start putting you know commercial tourists etc. It has to happen. If you, you know and it's a good point at ground based space. What if human life started on Mars? This is the thing mm. is that you know we've got so much evidence now from organics in meteorites and i've got meteorites behind me in the cabinets you know some martian meteorites nw869 which is kind of the same type as the allen hills 84001 which shows evidence of percolated water having gone through it we know that there was water on mars we know that there's sporadic methane we still don't know if it's abiotic or, bio or biological methane we you know all these unanswered questions and you know Going back to the China thing, China has said again they aim to be the first to bring back samples. Now they're they're on a real space race against the United States, and it, it's a great thing because obviously what we saw with Apollo, with so the old former Soviet Union and the United States, is innovation being driven forward at a rapid pace because of national pride and geopolitics. Now, if China is saying that they want to get to Mars first. You know, they've had a very successful first attempt at Mars, putting it mildly, you know, having both an orbiter and a lander and a rover on, on the Martian surface in one hit is, is spectacular for anyone, by anyone's standards. You know, Europe have been trying to do this for 50 years and haven't got anywhere. Same with Russia. So trying to hit it first time and obviously the work that they've done on the moon as well, we've talked about many times. Um I think, though, boots on the ground is the key one here. We can send as many robots as we want, and we could drill in, and we could, you know, potentially bring back samples. But, you know, as you know, Terry, it's like the the analogy of if you put somebody on the Earth in the middle of the Atacama Desert, and said, mm. right, is there any life? You know, if an alien species landed in the middle of the Atacama Desert and they had half an hour on, you know, in the middle of the Paranel region, and they, is there any life? Well, no, they'd probably think it was barren and dry and dead. So. It's that ability to truly explore. And you only have to go back to Apollo 17. We just talked about, you know, Jack Schmidt and, you know, Gene Cernan wandering around on the lunar surface for three days and discovering incredible things because they had a geologist there. You know, Gene Cernan saying, oh, it's orange soil. And Jack Schmidt saying, well, wait until I have a look at it because I'm the geologist. Oh, yeah, heck. So this is the thing. We need to get boots on the ground. And this is my furious argument with Professor Sir Martin Rees and huge respect to him as an astronomer. But sorry step away from the space science um and in particular you know this the key thing as well with the 
the advent of more and more commercial space activities, if we start just focusing on the commercialization of Mars and sending tourists to Mars and all of these things that SpaceX are, uh, are contemplating, we're never going to find out if that, you know, the, if human life, as ground-based space has put in the chat, if human life started on Mars. We don't know. We will never know because we'll have contaminated it so much that there'll never be a way to absolutely 100% say, oh, yeah, there was life on, on Mars before we got there. You've got to send, you know, properly trained scientists, you know, properly protected robots, etc. not contaminate the planet with hundreds of people. Just, you know, do it in small steps like we do with, you know, the Antarctic research stations, these, you know, in, in the modern era. You know, send proper scientists there first. Anyway, that's my opinion on that one. Yeah. Um, right. Are we going back to original running order, or do you want to keep yeah, going? Yeah, no. Do you want to take the next one as well? I love okay. the next story anyway. Right. 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 Brilliant. So, this is uh, another one where uh, uh, the amateur astronomer plays a role. It's got quite a complex story. But uh, our good friend, the Andromeda Galaxy, our nearest big neighbor in the universe, there are other much smaller satellite galaxies of the Milky Way, like the Magellanic Clouds and dwarf sculptor galaxies and so on. But the one that people are most familiar with, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, is the Andromeda Galaxy. You can see it with the naked eye. And it's the big sister, if you like, of the Milky Way Galaxy, roughly half as big again, uh, just a few a few trillion stars but anyway an absolutely fantastic sight and unfortunately seeing it through a telescope does not show you what the the best photographs show but nevertheless it is amazing to look up at that galaxy and see that you're you're looking at light that departed from the galaxy about uh, two and a half million years ago but it's not just the andromeda galaxy even in that photograph there you can see that there are uh, several satellite galaxies one is quite easy to see just down below that little uh, orange blob, a uh, dwarf elliptical galaxy, you can see that in a good pair of binoculars or a small telescope. But there are actually lots of other dwarf galaxies surrounding the Andromeda galaxy, just like there are dwarf galaxies surrounding the Milky Way. And uh, some of them are, are pretty typical ordinary dwarf galaxies. The name gives you the clue. They're basically just a lot smaller. Some of them have uh, largely old uh, population two stars, and some of them are uh, moderately active in terms of star formation. But the interesting thing is that they have now discovered, and I'll try and say a bit more about the discovery process, a fossil galaxy, a really, really ancient galaxy with stars that are uh, about not much younger than the universe itself. So the first stars that were formed in the formation process uh, after the, the end of the so-called Dark Ages and the reionization epoch and so on. Some of the oldest stars that we know of. And the interesting thing is that this was spotted by an amateur astronomer not looking through his own telescope, but actually looking through archival data from other telescopes. And it's quite a complicated story, so I'm going to refer to my notes here. There's a, 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 an organization or a, a, what's the word, a, a program called Noir Lab. The, uh, what is it? The National Optical Infrared Astronomy Research Laboratory. And it has uh, various uh, branches, if you like, using telescopes both north and south of the equator. Anyway, this Italian astronomer, Giuseppe Donatelli, spotted a little faint fudge of, of light on an image taken not by a camera looking for these things, but the dark energy camera looking for 
signs of dark energy on a four-meter telescope, the Blanco Telescope on Cerro Tololo in Chile. And he was using that image and thought this looks a bit odd. So they then needed to do a lot of follow-up and without going into all the details of all the telescopes that were involved, they also used the dark energy spectroscopic instrument on a four meter diameter telescope, uh, the Mayall telescope in Kitt Peak in Arizona, which luckily just recently escaped a forest fire and one that I've uh, had the privilege of, of going along and seeing, being hands-on with an amazing telescope. It was one of the biggest in the world then. It's now sort of second, second class, second division. And then they had uh, to confirm that using one of the biggest telescopes in the world, uh, the Gemini South 8.2 meter and its twin, the Gemini North, which is on Hawaii, both 8.2 meter telescopes. And it took the power of those huge telescopes to be able to confirm the existence of stars in that dwarf galaxy, even though it is one of the nearest other galaxies in the universe. The Andromeda galaxy, as I say, 2.5 million light years away. This is a satellite of that galaxy. So it's roughly the same order of magnitude. Normally, you would expect to see uh, stars in a satellite galaxy of the, uh, the Andromeda galaxy with a much smaller instrument because these are very old and relatively faint stars. It took an 8.2 meter telescope to discover them. And what's so significant about this is, as I say, these are fossil stars that were created when there was very little in the universe in terms of heavy elements. In fact, astronomers call it metals anything that is heavier than lithium, hydrogen, helium, and lithium were created in the Big Bang. All other elements, the astronomers class as metals, and they were uh, formed during various phases of star formation. Again, I'm not going to go on, uh, go into go in all the details of that, but these stars contain hardly any metals at all. So they're some of the very first stars that were formed uh, in the, uh, the period when the universe first uh, started forming stars. So absolutely fascinating. And obviously now the astronomers at a professional level are using the, the most powerful instruments at their disposal to study these. But the interesting point, as I said at the beginning, the first discovery was made by an amateur astronomer looking at that data. And we've said many times, Nick, that there's still many things that amateur astronomers can do and there's proof of it. So uh, your opinion on that? Absolutely. I mean, you only have to look at the huge success of the Zooniverse project for as a perfect example of this. You know, and Hanny Van Arkel uh, and her discovery of the Hanny's, Hanny's object. Hanny's object. Yeah. Hanny's um, pervert. Hanny's Volver, yeah, yeah, you know, again, just amateurs looking through masses of data, and in that, like this case, trying to classify galaxies, um, obviously trying to train up artificial intelligence systems to to perform better gal uh, galactic classification, and then these kind of strange objects, these pea green objects, kind of appearing on some of the images, and you know, a school teacher in in Holland, and she's a lovely person, Hanny Van Arkel, met many times, um, you know, saying, well, what is this? It's just asking those questions. And sometimes astronomers can be so focused on their area of research, professional astronomers, that they kind of miss stuff. And again, I love this story, because as you said, it's an amateur going through data. It kind of goes back, though, to the argument of should, when should data be released? And I've talked mm -hmm. about this with various people. Yeah, we had the whole debacle with the European Space Agency and the Rosetta Space 
Ashcraft. You know, you do need to have an image data release policy, but you do need to protect the scientists. This is very, very true. The scientists who are working on, you know, critical data coming in need to have their data protected. And NASA have got one policy where literally, you know, as we've seen with the images from the rovers, they will release images within 24 hours. It was, you know, well documented in the Martian that that is a kind of NASA staple policy that images are almost released immediately. Now, this can cause problems, you know, things like images from the Cassini spacecraft, for example, some of the data from that has been used to, to you know, generate scientific papers that were almost without the knowledge of the Cassini imaging team. Um, and this is, you know, this is one of the big fears with the European Space Agency with Rosetta. But then the counter argument to that is if you don't release the images, then people don't get excited about the science or as excited about the science. And there was a whole brouhaha over, you know, the images as, you know, Philae and Rosetta were approaching the landing phase and approaching the comet. And the, the image quality and the, the data release was just not there. It was completely non-existent. And I think ESRA have learned a lot of lessons from that. But this is a good example of even historic data. And there's been recent discoveries going back into data from the late 70s, early 80s with some of the satellites like IRAS, for example, the infrared astronomical satellite in the 80s. Some of the data generated from that 30, 40 years ago is now being used to make new discoveries. And we only have to look at you know the Apollo samples and some of the new discoveries that have been made from the moon rocks that have come back. So it's a good one. It's a good one to kind of discuss the pros and cons of whether or not you get you know, vast amounts of amateurs working on data. And, you know, in some cases, you're just going to get nothing or you're going to get a lot of people misclassifying or miss, you know, or asking the wrong question or asking annoying questions. But as this one has proven, you know, it, it's generated something quite unique. Now, the other one with the James Webb images coming up, and I know, mm -hmm. Terry, you're very excited about this. You know, yeah, uh, the James Webb actually looking in the infrared will be able to do add a lot of more, a lot yeah. more information, things like this. But and that's actually a very interesting angle because quite apart from finding this particular galaxy, that that is an unusual find. Astronomers think theoretically there should be an awful lot more of these fossil yeah. galaxies, but they're finding very, very few of them, and that's casting some doubt about our theories about sort of the start of the the galaxy and star formation period. Uh, and sort of right back indeed to our, our understanding of the cosmology, the origin of the universe. Yeah. So it, it's an interesting angle and uh, we need more discoveries like this to give us as much data as possible on that. And certainly James Webb will be one of the, the tools that will be used to look at the, that sort of data. I mean, that's the thing I would suggest now that rather than Webb, and you know, the rumours are that Webb's going to be uh, first images coming out in, in about a week or so, yeah. is going to be delivering some of the you know, deepest images. Obviously, the Hubble's Ultra Deep Field is one of the deepest images ever taken, if not the deepest. But they're saying that James Webb is going to exceed this by some margin, which is yeah. fantastic. Um, and the implications for physics could be quite profound You know, if they find things that really shouldn't be there at these early epochs. But I think as well, going back to what you were just saying, Terry, and this, you, we're definitely onto something here, doing galactic surveys around nearby galaxies that will potentially uncover, because of the infrared nature, because, as you said, these are very old, very faint objects that require immense telescope power. And don't forget that James Webb is going to completely destroy any ground-based system, you know, in 
you know, in the infrared spectrum in particular, obviously because of its capabilities and the size of the mirror, but being able to do these scans and surveys around nearby and even distant galaxies to find, you know, not only the exoplanets and the exoplanet atmospheres, but even complete dwarf galaxies in these fossil galaxies. And again, it could have profound implications for galactic formation, all the issues with dark energy, dark matter, rotation, you name it. There's a whole ton of stuff that could come out of this that we are just not aware of yet. So again, big story this. Um, yep. it, it's one of those ones that kind of can just make you, there's so much coming in in space all the time. And this one kind of, I saw it and it was like, mm, that's interesting. But then when you start digging into it, it's, you realize the, the profound implications of what this could be. And, and again, going on to the James Webb, which we'll talk about in a little bit. You know, it, it could be huge. But on to our, our, our last big story of the day. Um, finally, somebody's had the chutzpah, to coin a phrase, to actually stand up and say, we're doing this wrong. This is bad. And that somebody is a big player in the game. That somebody is a company called Inmarsat. Now, if you don't know who Inmarsat are, Inmarsat have been going for about 40-something years, about 43 years, 1979. So Inmarsat are one of the original constellation companies. They developed a satellite communication system, which is used extensively by the Royal Navy, in particular in the UK, and you know, various maritime uh, agencies and navies around the world, and is used for communication, satellite communication, and satellite phone-based systems, relatively low data rates compared to you know what's happening now with the likes of SpaceX. But they've been around for quite some time. They've got a lot of history in this. They know what they're doing. Their constellation, for want of a better term, is about 14 satellites. So it's not huge. We're not talking about you know, you know, these huge constellations. And they have produced a very, very detailed, exhaustive paper which goes into all of the major problems that we are facing now. Uh, and I know Terry and I have both been shouting about this from the rooftops, and I, you know, on social media in particular, I'm extremely active when it comes to this topic. Um, but they produce a very detailed 54-page report, which in effect highlights all of the major issues related to not only space debris, but our relationship between the Earth and space, um, etc., etc. Now, thinking about this, they've highlighted the fact that there's already 10,000 tons of debris in low Earth orbit. This is going back into the early 1960s, with things like the Space Needles Project, where we're trying to create artificial ionospheres, etc. And every single glove, spanner, socket, whatever, that was dumped by Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, all through that epoch, all the Russian satellites, Chinese satellites. And don't forget, up until a, you know, even a short time ago, it was predominantly government-based satellites. There weren't many commercial launches, there weren't many academic launches. Um, they've highlighted as well that it's not just a random throwaway number. There are over 130 million pieces of debris in orbit. Uh, and this is ranging from submillimeter up to the size of Envysat, which is the size of a school bus all traveling at around about eight kilometers a second. And I was doing a, an astronomy outreach event at a music festival uh, last weekend, uh, about four and a half thousand people there. It was really, really nice. And we we're showing a meteorites and saying, can you imagine that one hit that, you know, holding an iron meteorite and just saying to the kids, can you imagine that one hitting you at, you know, 17 and a half thousand miles an hour? That tear through the entire space station. And that was something, you know, an iron meteorite about yay big. So what, Inmarsat have basically done with this very detailed and quite scathing report is highlight some of the key issues. 
the key one that they said is that we have to change the way that we view space and its relationships with. So it, they're, they're calling it space environmentalism. So it's almost like we need, and I've said this before, we need a David Attenborough style or of magnitude figure, or a Greta Thunberg type figure to say, we need to be thinking about space in the same way that we think about Earth. We need to be thinking about space in the same way that we think about the oceans and the way that we think about the forests. And in terms of, you know, responsible use and responsible administration and consideration for future users and future generations. This is this is not a joke here. If we don't do this, we're stuck on this planet. And at the rate we're going, we are increasing noctilucent clouds, like I was saying before, and the increase in methane and climate change and global warming. It's not a good thing. Um, what it also says is the current space community is not a good steward. We're not good. I mean, the, you, I was out with a very famous planetary scientist in London a few weeks ago, um, and we were talking about you know science versus commercialism. And there's so much that science wants to achieve and wants to do that is for the good of humankind, but it's been blocked and stopped by commercial activities and commercial, you know, commercial players basically saying to the scientific community, you know, you're getting in our way. We want to, you know, we want to make loads and loads of money out of this. So we're not good stewards. And the fact that, you know, within the next 10 to 15 years, we could be looking at anywhere between, you know, we've currently got four and a half thousand satellites in orbit. You could be looking at anywhere up to a hundred thousand satellites in orbit. It's it's absolutely astronomical. And then highlighting the risk of debris. Inmarsat themselves, this is the CEO of a major satellite company, saying that the rise of Leo Mega Constellations, the Kessler syndrome risk, and that's the collision risk that we saw in the movie Gravity, becomes less theoretical and much more likely every day. And even with you know the best will and intent of companies, you know, that are looking at debris removal, one-to-one -one debris removal. Oh, Jacks are involved and various other companies, you know, space agencies and companies are looking at this. It's not enough. If you've got one one up, one down, or even one up and three down, you know, Musk is launching a hundred satellites a month. And that's just one player. You know, that's not one web, that's not Amazon, that's not China, that's not Russia, that's not everybody else he's thinking of putting up huge constellations. And then obviously, then the risk of accidental and catastrophic collisions is increasing every day. And it's like the Titanic scenario where people are only going to respond when somebody dies and it's going to happen um and we don't have sufficient provision to look at this you know there was a call came out from various defense agencies to improve this because the defense implications you know from the sector i'm in are absolutely enormous you know you could you, if you've got a non-strategic player in terms of the space game like north korea who don't have anything really in in orbit you know, their ability to take out entire orbital tracks with an ASAT test is is real. This is a real threat. And this is, you know, New Zealand recently signed, you know, again, we're another signatory on the ASAT moratorium. But let's not forget, we've had the United States, we've had China, we've had Russia, we've had India already doing these missile ASAT anti-satellite missile destruction tests in orbit, creating thousands, if not millions more pieces of debris. And this is the other thing. The United Nations, I'm going through some of the report here, the, the unwieldy UN process is moving too slowly. It is. It's like any government engine or any government-based machine, it just can't react quickly enough. And this is why companies like SpaceX are completely cleaning up. They're taking over because they're moving rapidly. They've got an agile, rapid development, fail-fast mindset. And the governments of this world and the space agencies have been completely blindsided by this. 
But on top of that, the governments who are able to make the decisions aren't making the decisions quickly enough. And if we're still arguing about climate change and now given the cost of fuel and everything else, everyone's rolling back on, you know, commitments that were made at COP26 only a few months ago. The governments of the world are rolling back already and saying, well, we need oil, oil or we need coal because Russia's done this. And like, this is really, really catastrophic on many fronts for the planet. Um, and then the final thing that they say is sharp and predatory practices by commercial and satellite, commercial and government satellite operators are putting space operations at risk. That's true. Because, you know, the, the licensing from the IT, well, not the IT, but the FCC, etc. Musk has got the US government over a barrel. Because without him, they haven't got the capability at the moment because of the issues Boeing have still got in getting back up and down to the space station. So he can basically say what he wants and get away with it because without him, and obviously he's done great things, you know, great things in terms of helping Ukraine with Starlink. But let's not kind of forget the fact that Starlink is, is a potential catastrophic mess just waiting to happen. But these companies are also monopolizing orbits as well. So you know, this is what they call orbital exclusion, where effectively, if you put enough satellites in certain orbits, nobody else can get there. You're basically blocking it out. And this kind of space sector, space sector capture, where they're saying, well, you know, we're going to capture a segment, we're going to dominate satellite communications, or we're going to dominate the internet. It's it's just you go through this report, and if you haven't seen it, I'll I'll put a link um, in the chat to it, um, and you can share that on. Hopefully, um, it's if you can just Google it, it's the Inmarsat um, uh, debris report. Just type that into Google, and you'll find it. It's it's well worth a read. You have to give them your email address, but um, it's absolutely well worth a read. And then they've got recommendations. You know, national regulators need to address sustainability. Absolutely, but they're not. The UK Space Agency, you know, for all the best will and intent in the world, aren't really doing much. The European Space Agency, again, for all the best will in the world, aren't really doing much. Russia aren't going to be listening to anybody right now. China, likewise, they're just going to say, well, hold on, you can't tell us. It's like the, the whole issue with fossil fuels. You know, the UK government saying to the Indian government, for example, you can't burn fossil fuels. Well, we did for 200 years. Why shouldn't they? So they're now saying, well, you've put a thousand satellites. Well, why shouldn't we? We don't want to rely on US satellite constellations and networks. Um, but they're saying that countries with a strong space presence, such as the UK, US and the EU, need to come together and agree on basic standards. Yeah, they're not even doing that. So they've really hit the nail on the head here, you know, targeting the United Nations to really get on board with this. But again, the UN, you only have to look at what's happening with the Ukraine and how you know, ineffective in many ways the UN is. NATO seems to be quite strong, but is the United Nations doing enough? But the ITU, the people who regulate and govern spectrum and broadband, you know, spectrum on the ground, should they have control over the skies as well? They, yes, they should. Because at the moment, you know, we're looking at, you know, fantastic images of the Andromeda galaxy and the work that's hopefully going to come from the James Webb Space Telescope. But we've got radio, massive radio telescope arrays, and they're not going to be able to see anything. So, yeah, yeah, Rob in the uh, in the chat said, yeah, the EU can't even agree on phone charges. <laughs> He's right; it's absolutely spot on. So, you know, the the report basically says we are at the brink. We've got to come back from the brink. We are literally. I think we're too late. I genuinely think we're too late to do anything. And I think something's going to happen, and then people will go, "Oh, we didn't think that was going to happen." Um, like, oh, like Russia invades Ukraine in 2014 or invades a, the Donbass region or the Crimea region. And Alex says, oh, we don't think they're going to invade. It's going to happen. You've just got to wake up and smell the coffee. Um, thoughts, Terry? 
Right. I think you should wear a blood pressure monitor anytime <laughs> you're, you're talking about this subject. But you're absolutely right. Uh, we've all heard about the tipping point in climate change. And there is a tipping point here. Once the uh, Kessler syndrome starts, once once there are a few collisions and the, the amount of debris up there, which 130 million is the, the quote from Inmersat, the number of pieces of space debris that are up there already. Once it starts, it's exponential. You can't stop it once it starts. Yeah. And it's, I think it's sometimes a bit like having scattered a, a minefield around your house. And then you suddenly realize, first of all, I've lost the maps of where they all are. And secondly, I don't have any technology of actually uh, dealing with those mines. If I go near them, they're going to explode. We're almost in that situation where we are imprisoning ourselves on planet Earth because, as you say, it's going to be too dangerous to go up there. Uh, another interesting thing that came out on the report actually is that the amount of awareness uh, among particularly the younger generation, but throughout all age groups, they surveyed um, 18,000 people yep. across uh, UK, US, uh, Canada, Brazil, uh, Germany, Australia, Japan, somewhere else, I can't remember them all. Uh, reasonable size surveys, a few thousand, uh, 3,000 in the UK, and the smallest surveys were of 1,000 people in some of those countries. Huge amount of awareness of this and a considerable degree of concern right across the age group. I think it was 18 to 65 or 65 plus. So the public are aware of it. The ones that were questioned, a lot of them are quite worried about it. They need to actually be, uh, as they say in America, well, I'm not said, they need to be basically pressurizing their politicians to do something about this. Once it starts, as I say, it's unstoppable. The Kessler syndrome is actually something that once it starts, there's nothing you can do about it. But it's like the Klondike with the gold rush, you know, and people people smell dollars and they see Elon Musk as the richest human being on the planet and they see Jeff Bezos as the second richest person on the planet. What are they both doing? Building mega constellations and, you know, going into space. So they're thinking, ah, that's where the money is. So all these venture capitalists and, you know, governments even throwing money at space and saying, oh, we've got to, you know, we've got to do this in space. Without any kind of looking at the, the long-term consequences and i'm looking through the chat and you know ground-based space saying yeah we need to clean up space you're mm -hmm. absolutely right but astra scale you know in their collaboration with jackson that was one of the ones i was kind of that was going through my mind before again it's one to one or one to three or one to four you know we need vastly more than this um, and it's not just you know removing dead satellites or larger objects it's the small stuff you know we don't even have the ability to track anything even with lockheed martin space fence you know with a five centimeter resolution capability that i've got and they're now looking at you know synthetic aperture radar from the ground because obviously if you've got cloud cover you can't track things in space and you've got norse and exo analytics and various other companies that are doing so much great work on this but even they can't track something sub five centimeters but if you've got a lump of iron that's three centimeters across traveling at seven kilometers or eight kilometers a second it's going to take out a spacecraft you know make no make no bones about it if something that size hits a satellite it this bye-bye satellite and you're looking at thousands of pieces of debris spinning off from that there is a great study by the university of florida uh where they threw something the size of a coke can at seven kilometers a second into an artificial satellite in a kind of test chamber tunnel and they picked out over 170,000 pieces of debris they were still picking debris out of the test tunnel a year later so 
you know, and thanks, you know, Rob Thomas has said that, you know, since he's been following me on social media, I've, I have been banging on about this. And I know people like Carolyn Porco, for example, you know, some, some great people really getting behind this. But whilst you've got the big guns, you know, the big space primes who are really, you know, involved in this and making lots of money from it. And they're saying, well, oh, there's no problem. There's no, you know, you know, hide the problem. It's ignore the problem. Or the government saying, oh, it's just ignore the problem. Whilst that's happening, we don't have the big guns, the really big guns. Your Brian Coxes of this world should be screaming from the rooftops about this. This should be on like national news. This should be national television at, you know, seven o'clock at night on a Saturday in the same way that, you know, a lot of the climate action programs have been of late. This, this is the scale of this problem. We don't understand, as you said, Terry, we're going to imprison ourselves on this planet. And we're not talking about for a few years. We're talking about if Kessler happens, you know, and Leo, Mio, Geo, or Leo and Mio in particular, Leo, Ophelbit, Medium, Ophelbit, become completely unusable and we can't launch anything, then you know, we're, we're stuffed. Yeah. So it's, it's not know. just that. I mean, there's so much that we rely on in terms of the satellites that are up there and are working for international banking, for control of traffic, air traffic and so on, uh, for SatNav and all the rest of it. Um, they are actually all eventually going to be knocked out of uh, Kessler syndrome start. So, you know, it's in their own interest to try and do something. And I see a good friend of mine there, Dave McDonald, has put up with a suggestion or come up with a suggestion back charging uh, those yeah. that have already this, launched this, well, and this, charging for any more launches that are made. And that goes into a fund to try and uh, rectify the problem. It How has been work, discussed. No, no, it yeah. has. It, yeah. It's been discussed. It was interesting. It was at conference. I was at a conference about two years ago where that very topic came up and they were saying about, you know, increasing the cost. But then you've got the UK government who are trying to minimize the cost. They're trying to do the right thing in terms of sustainable use of space and, the, you know, quoting all of this. But then throwing $450 million at OneWeb is not a sustainable use of space. That's putting up a huge constellation again. And lest we forget, OneWeb were quite happily going to launch from Russia. Um, even after they invaded Ukraine. So let's go morals versus money here. It's it's always that. Um, there was a discussion. The interesting one from some of the legal people was that they were saying, yes, you could potentially do that. But then all that's going to happen is that India and PSLV or China, et cetera, are just going to say, well, we won't charge you. And nobody, you know, unless there's some kind of global agreement and the whole world suddenly becomes happy clappy, they're not going to agree to anything. So they'll just carry on launching. And PSLV rockets, the Indian ISRO can launch 100 plus satellites in a go, even on their launches. Um, yeah, the companies who can make a fast buck are going to make a fast buck and be damned with the consequences, as it were. So the interesting quote, though, was that the only people who are excited about this are the lawyers, are the lawyers and the insurance companies, because the lawyers are the ones who are going to make the money from all the legal litigation and lawsuits. But then the, the issue with liability is an interesting one as well. It's like, well, unless you can prove that a satellite destroyed your satellite or a piece of debris from your satellite destroyed your satellite, who do you sue? There's no liability. It's not like a car crash or a boat crash or something on the ground where you've got, okay, you, you can apportion blame to somebody. You know, if you've got a piece of debris that's dating back to the mid-1960s that you can't even track and it takes out your $300 million satellite, it's not like you can do about it. So insurance is one. Uh, and then the other one, yeah, the, sorry, the lawyers is one, but then the insurance companies, the insurance companies are just going, hello. It's like, it's fantastic for them because every time something goes wrong, the insurance costs go up. 
you know, at the moment, the launch costs are coming down because the likes of SpaceX can launch and relaunch and relaunch, you know, and, and you're now getting two and a half to three thousand dollars per kilo to orbit. You know, I've got I've mentioned this before, I've got a friend who launches patches and pins up onto the International Space Station uh, using a SpaceX Dragon. Um, and he basically has a box about yay big that he stuffs full of patches and pins. It goes up, it orbits the Earth for 12 months, patches come down, he sells them as they've flown in space, you know, whatever. But this is the thing, the, the costs from a launch perspective are going to come down, but the insurance costs could become, pardon the pun, astronomical. So it's interesting. Yeah, we're going through the chat here. Need to be a big fleet. Yeah, big fleet. You would. And this is the other thing. You know, you, we've looked. My company's looked at things like magnetic tethers, which is what Astroscale are doing. And we've looked at, you know, kind of almost like aerogel, gigantic aerogel capture systems. But you've got the whole issue of if you are traveling at those kind of velocities and you've already got several thousand collision avoidance maneuvers per week happening. If you've got something you know large that can scoop up lots of debris and you don't know that there's a Russian or Chinese spy satellite there, you know, could that be seen as a declaration of war? So these little bots, yeah, lots and lots of AI controlled spacecraft scooping up any debris that they find. Fantastic. Yeah. But don't forget as well, how do you scoop it up? If it's traveling towards you at a combined mm -hmm. impact velocity of anywhere up to 16 kilometers a second, how do you capture it? Especially if it's non-magnetic, you know, you've got lots of things that are aerospace-grade aluminium. You've got lots of lots of foils and you know cloth coverings. There's so much up there that you literally either can't track, or even if you could track it, you know, you'd have to go into a matching orbit. You look at what Astroscale are doing; it's phenomenal in terms of they're having to go around the satellite and even capturing a satellite. You know, if it's tumbling at a high tumble rate. Mm -hmm. It's really tricky to latch onto it. And these things weren't designed to be latched onto. So, yeah, and Dave McDonald, any country with skin in the game should sign up. I absolutely agree. You, you, they should. But they're not. The United States right now are still looking at granting a license for SpaceX to have upwards of 30,000 satellites in orbit. And then Bezos will come along and China will counter and say, well, we can't use a U.S. network. So they'll put up 13,000, which is what they're planning. Once Russia get somebody who isn't a complete despot in charge, they'll probably get back into the space game as well. So absolutely. You thought, yeah, that is a good point. You thought Brexit was a no-brainer. This is the problem. <laughs> Politicians, do they think? So it's... Yeah, Terry's right. I should get a blood pressure monitor. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a subject so dear to my heart. And, you know, I was working. I've got the satellite that I was working on literally there. It's on a shelf. I was working on a Pico satellite for several years uh, with the intent of launching that, and I scrapped it. I'm not going to become part of the problem. You know, the, the things I've been working on are now being you know, focusing in other directions, trying to, you know, do other areas of space and try and do it some justice. But I'm not going to become part of the problem. Um, so and if you, put up, if you put up 10,000 bots, even that is going to add to the problem. That's 10, well, exactly. Uh, 10,000 more targets that could <laughs> that, be hit themselves. That, that's your thing. SpaceX yeah. have got, what's it, about 5 to 7% failure rate. So if you put up 10,000 bots and even 5% fail, you know, yeah. not good. Not good. And this is the other interesting thing. And we've, we've war gamed this um, at work. If you've got a defunct satellite, that you can't move, that's a large defunct satellite, something like MVSAT. If you are pretty good with orbital dynamics and you are pretty good in terms of ballistic trajectories or whatever, and you can say, right, okay, well, 
or you're a hacker. And this is the other big scary one at the moment, cyber threats and cyber terrorism, being able to take over satellites or ground stations and maneuver satellites. But if you've got the ability to either do an ASAT firing on another satellite in the trajectory of that large defunct satellite mm -hmm. so that the debris will cause that collision effect or to take over a satellite and weaponize it by, you know, performing a RCS thrust maneuver or whatever, or, you know, spin up the, the reaction wheels or anything like that to change the orbit of the spacecraft, <laughs> all hell could break loose. And if you are not somebody with skin in the game, as Dave said, if you're a rogue nation state, where's your optimal target? The, the economic impact of the Kessler syndrome if it happens, if it happens to the scale where it could happen, where you lose communications, where you lose shipping capability, defense capability, all of that is in the trillions. And if you're a rogue nation state anywhere in the world who wants to really, really upset the big go the big guys, the Americans, etc., yeah, it's going to be bad. And the so, other thing is that a whole lot of countries haven't even signed up yet to the Treaty on Space Law. But look, we're running out of time, and your are. blood pressure is probably through the roof. Let's, so. let's, go on, let's go on to what's happening in the skies. About right, okay. yeah, let's do the fun uh, since it's the middle of the summer, there's really not all that much uh, in way of things to look at, but there are nevertheless a few. Noctilucent clouds, which you mentioned last time. Uh, interesting connection to what uh, we've been talking about earlier and that there's now some evidence that uh, high altitude uh, atmospheric methane from things including rocket launches uh, is uh, increasing the, the brightness and the frequency of noctilucent cloud. You really need to Google them to see the detail of it, but basically they're very high altitude clouds that are seen over the poles whenever the sun is too far below the horizon to illuminate ordinary tropospheric weather type clouds, but it does illuminate these beautiful ethereal wispy uh, patches of cloud high up initially caused we think by, by meteoric dust um, whenever meteors burn up in the high atmosphere beautiful to see easy to photograph easy even to take a video of on your smartphone our good friend the international space station hopefully still intact well has just started another series of morning passes uh, and this being the time of year uh, those will trans, uh, transition gradually into sort of middle of the night passes uh, in the middle of July and then become evening passes as we get towards the end of July. So it'll be visible for the whole month of, the, of July uh, from Britain and Ireland. And on some nights, you may even be lucky enough to see four passes in the one night. You need to look at the site like heavens above to, to check that out. Uh, a few other little things. Mercury still visible, uh, although very low down from our latitude and Venus both together in the morning sky. Interesting point, aphelion, the Earth was at its furthest point from the Sun in its elliptical orbit yesterday, even though we're still heading into the main part of summer. But to go back to something we already mentioned, I think the highlight, certainly of the next week or so, is going to be the release of the first image from the James Webb Space Telescope, which we've been waiting for. We followed the development of that story from right from basically it was coming up to launch. Uh, it's due to be launched or uh, released on the 12th of July and it's promised to be the deepest space image ever taken, exceeding even the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. And I can't wait for that. And I'm sure you're the same, Nick. 
Absolutely. Just a bit of breaking news as well. Uh, NASA have just reported that they've lost contact with the Capstan spacecraft on the way to the moon, which is a oh, relatively small right. satellite. That's that's happened literally as we've been on air. There's been a, a release about that I've just seen on air. Um, yeah, it is. It's going to be amazing seeing what the James Webb comes up with. Um, I always go back to, I, I used to write for a magazine, a um, UK magazine called Astronomy Now, and the editor at Astronomy Now once said to me that the Herschel images look like somebody had vomited on a plate. Um, that's the thing with infrared images. So I'm hoping the, obviously, the massively improved resolution from James Webb, and obviously, you know, the incredible capabilities of the image processing team, we're going to get great science, but also hopefully some really beautiful images from it as well. Um, yeah, keep looking up at the skies. It is the height of summer. We've got the Perseids coming up in the next month. So around about the time we're, we're next on air, we'll just be in the middle of kind of peak Perseid time. So great time to get your kids looking up at space. And, you know, the number of meteorites that are being discovered in the UK at the moment, thanks to the UK Meteor Network. Uh, definitely look up. Um, we'll say more on that next time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, just to say a huge thank you uh, to everyone yeah. in the chat. Rob Thomas, Dave, uh, Ground Base Space, uh, Afraid of Dark, loads of people in the chat tonight. Some really great comments, questions. Thank you so much. And before I hand uh, back to uh, Latch and the team, I just want to say again, a huge thank you to Space Store, in particular, um, the back the backroom team, as it were. Um, you, the audience, never see these people, or very rarely see any of these people, but some of them are moving on to passages new one of them's going traveling around the world and you know we're, we're losing some not only good friends but great people great technical people yep. um, who've been a massive support to to us in this show so i just like to say a personal thank you to you know you know don't name names because you know people like their privacy but some really great people in the background team who've been a, a huge support and help to us and may their their travels and their future ventures be amazing we'll see you in a month i'm going to hand you back now to uh latch at space store um, who are just opening up a new place in oxford um so uh definitely go and visit their new shop in oxford um it's in the covered market area i was up there a few days ago um at the university's something else completely but it's a beautiful part of oxford uh, and oxford's an amazing city as well so definitely uh, go and see the space store uh, they're opening imminently i believe is it yeah you're could right I, could i just say i echo everything that nick said there but it won't take up more time but yeah i totally agree yeah definitely we're opening up on the 16th of july at 11 a.m that's going to be our grand opening of our new space store in oxford so if you're in and around oxford come come down say hi um, a lot of our team will be there and you can do some great VR space experiences. One, which we've actually developed in-house quite recently. Um, so come and check that out. Nice. Uh, in and around Oxford. That's the 16th of July. So uh, just under two weeks to go. Um, and we'll see you guys there. And uh, Nick and Terry, what can I say? Thank you again for another great show. Um, you never cease to amaze. And thanks again for everyone who's tuned in tonight. Dave, Robert, Ground Base Space. Um, this is a show because of you guys um and we really appreciate the support um remember if you haven't followed us on all social media platforms go ahead so you can stay up to date with whatever things we're up to and yes as nick said we'll see you guys again in a month's time thank you so much for joining us cheers everybody keep looking good night up from him good yeah. night from me uh, great evening <laughs> see you later bye bye all Thank you for listening to the Space Store Podcast. You can tune in live to our Space Roundup with Nick and Terry and be part of the Q&A. 
every other Tuesday at 7.30pm on youtube.com forward slash live. Whilst you're there, catch up with season 1 and 2 of the Space Roundup and lots more. Like what you heard today? Why not support us by visiting our website spacedore.co and check out how we are bringing space to everyone, everywhere, every day.